Would you notice with me this scripture verse, Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21. It says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. This morning I want you to know that God is a God of restoration. He delights in seeing people reinstated to their former place of peace and favor. He renews the fallen. He repairs the damaged. And he recovers for us what was stolen. He makes things right again. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 25, the Lord said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. In other words, if the enemy has done damage to your life, even setting you back years or decades, God can quickly accelerate you and bring you back to the place where you should be. Can someone say amen? God is a restorer, a restorer of wounded souls and broken hearts. The Bible itself is a story of restoration. The gospel shows us how God reconciled the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And if God is willing to forgive sinners who come to him through Christ, why would he be unwilling to forgive his own sons and daughters when they falter? Hallelujah. No matter how far you have gone astray, or no matter how long it's been, your case is not too difficult for the Lord, for with him all things are possible. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3, we read a prophecy, really a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And what that really means is that God will not give up on us. Even if it seems we're too damaged to ever be repaired, even if it seems all hope is lost, he will not give up. Others may walk away from us in disgust, but I promise you, he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. The Bible tells me that God is love. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 also says, love is patient. God has supernatural patience, amazing patience. He can wait for you as long as it takes. And he'll stick with you until you are back in that place where you belong. Can I get an amen? amen. Now I'd like you to notice a few verses with me from the Psalms. Psalm 137 and verse 1. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So the Israelites, because of their sin, because of their continued idolatry, were taken into captivity. And in Babylon, they recalled how fortunate they once were 
You know, oftentimes we don't really appreciate the blessings that God has given us until they're taken away. Sometimes we take for granted all that God has done for us. And sometimes we wait until it's too late. And it says that they wept as they remembered Zion. You know, it's interesting in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I believe it's verse 10, the Bible says that there is a godly sorrow that produces repentance. Not all joy is the same. There, there is a, a worldly carnal joy, which is very fragile. It's very fleeting. It's gone before you know it. But there's also the joy of the Lord, which strengthens us and renews us. And likewise, not all sorrow is the same. There is a worldly sorrow that leads to death, leads to unending grief and misery. But there's a godly sorrow, which is really being contrite for sin, and it leads to repentance and life. And knowing this will explain some scriptures to us that seem out of place or obscure. For example, James chapter 4 verse 9 says this, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How many of you have this verse on the calendar hanging on your wall? How many of you this is your favorite verse in the Bible? How many of you don't even know this verse is in the Bible? But see, James is not suggesting that Christians should always be depressed and miserable. You see, he's referring to a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Because if you read the previous verse, verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, someone might ask, well, are all Christians sinners? Well, we'll ask this question. Are all Christians double-minded? No. But some are. He's not referring to people who are lost. He's referring to people who have fallen away from the right way of the Lord. So in this passage of Scripture, really beginning with verse 1, I'm talking about James chapter 4, he's addressing this issue, believers who have uh, given themselves to sin. And he's telling them, you know, you need, to, you need to turn to the Lord and seek His forgiveness. So by the rivers of Babylon they wept with godly sorrow. And by the way, it seems to have worked. Seventy years of captivity in Babylon cured them of idolatry. I mean, I mean from, from the book of, uh, really, Judges, all the way through to almost the end of the Old Testament, you see the continual problem was idolatry over and over again. They, from the moment they made that golden calf until Nebuchadnezzar leveled the city of Jerusalem, the issue was idolatry. But when they came back home, that never was an issue again in their life. You don't read anything in the New Testament about them having to deal with idolatry. It, it solved the problem. And then notice in Psalm 137, verse 2, and two, 2 verse 4, on the willows, that the willow tree, there we hung our lyres, meaning our harps, 
are musical instruments. For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, under the law, the Israelites were required to hold three annual feasts in Jerusalem. Every male Israelite, every adult male, was required by law to be there in Jerusalem three times a year. And these festivals were times to celebrate God's goodness. The entire nation assembled together to make sacrifices to the Lord and to offer Him exuberant praise. Hallelujah. And these feasts were intended to remind the people Remind them that the Lord delivered them out of Egypt and that he brought them through the wilderness and that he took them into the promised land. And evidently, evidently, the music and the songs from these joyous festivals were famous. They were world-renowned. Even people in faraway Babylon knew about them. And appreciated them. And so the Babylonians said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But they answered, how can we? How can we sing the Lord's song? Notice it's not just our song. It's not just the song. It's the Lord's song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The issue was not really what country they were in. The issue was what condition they were in. They were not just away from Jerusalem. They were away from God. See? And so Psalm 137 has a lesson for us today because it is really a picture of a believer who is out of fellowship with the Lord. Our captors demanded mirth. Mirth means like merrymaking, joyful expressions. But there is no mirth when the heart is heavy with sin, you see. It's interesting. They said, we can't sing these songs like this. See, that means you can't fake it. Some people try to fake it. You know, so they just kind of, you know, dress the part, say the words, go through the motions, but these people were honest enough to say, we're not hypocrites, and our music is not entertainment. It is worship to the Most High God. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 13, we are instructed to exhort one another daily. We are to come together and like, in a godly way, challenge one another, inspire one another, stir one another up, encourage one another. He says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's writing to Christians. 
So that's why it's important for us, just like it was important for the Israelites to regularly, regularly assemble together. We need to constantly remember that God delivered us out of Egypt, the world system. He set us free from slavery under Pharaoh, the devil, and sin. And he, has, he is bringing us into the promised land. He has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. We need to constantly celebrate all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So it's right that when we come here, we be joyful. It's right that we should shout. It's right that we should loudly praise God. We need to do that. God requires it of us. He said that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he describes sin as being deceitful. In other words, sin cannot be trusted. Sin is a liar. Sin is a trap. It makes false promises. Sin offers short-term pleasure in exchange for long-term pain. It promises us freedom, but brings us into bondage. And sin always costs us more than we are willing to pay. It takes us further than we want to go, and it keeps us longer than we want to stay. Sin always causes damage in our life. The reason God hates sin is because he loves you. Amen? And he says, lest any of you be hardened. Sin hardens us. You need to know that. It causes us to become insensitive and unfeeling. You know, when a Christian is tempted to do wrong and he sins, and of course nobody here has ever experienced that, but you know, maybe you know someone that's gone through that. When we, are first, when we first are tempted and we sin, our hearts are troubled. Our hearts are troubled. And maybe at that point we even vow that I will never do this again. I promise you, God, I promise myself I will never do it again. But then we often find ourselves going back to the same place, committing the same sin. And the second time, we are not as distressed as we were the first time. And then the third time, we're bothered even less. And it can go on and on and on until eventually we don't even care. We don't even care. In fact, you can, I'm, I'm talking to believers, you can get to the place, all of us, we can get to the place where we are bold in our sin. And boast in it. And we even approve of others who do likewise. But when we are in that place, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this with all uh, earnestness and, 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 and Christian love toward you, that when we get in that place, judgment is near. The Bible says judgment shall begin at the house of the Lord. You need to know that. Judgment in the New Testament may not be as swift as judgment in the Old Testament, but it's just as sure. Anybody out there today? So what I'm saying to you is there are many Christians all over the world today who are weeping 
by the rivers of Babylon. There are many believers in this city, in this state, who have hung their harps on the branch of the willow tree because it's not needed. I have no use for it anymore. Psalm 137 is a picture of grief and regret. Grief and regret. But don't go home yet. I have some good news for you. God is a God of restoration. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you, somebody, I want to tell you today, your captivity is ending now. You're coming back home. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Hallelujah. When we fail, we should not run from God. We should run to him. And when we fall, let us fall at his feet. Hallelujah. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says this. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. When we try to, it's the natural human response that when we, when we do wrong to cover it up, you know. And I'm not suggesting that you expose all the dirty laundry to the neighborhood, but we need to, we need to come to God. We need to acknowledge when we failed and we'll find mercy, we'll find forgiveness. Can I get an amen? amen. And I love this scripture verse as well. Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, as far as the east is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Notice he didn't say as far as North is from South. Because if you go North far enough, you'll eventually get to the North Pole. And if you keep going, now you're going South. But if you head East, you'll never find West. And if you go West, you'll never find East. He's not only forgiven us, but he's removed the stain of sin from our hearts. You don't have to live under a shadow of guilt and condemnation. Can I get a better amen than that this morning? I think that's good news. Now, I want you to notice with me a passage of scripture today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And I'm not going to read the whole uh, the whole portion because we don't have the time or I don't want to take the time. But it begins in verse 11 and goes down to verse 32. Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 32. It's a parable that probably everybody here knows. Commonly called the prodigal son. And this story vividly portrays God's willingness to restore. The younger of two sons urged his father to release his share of the inheritance. And verse 13 says this, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. In other words, that money was just burning a hole in his pocket. You know, that's how some people are. As soon as they get a little bit of money, man, I mean, 
You know, they, they got to, I'm going to spend it. It's, it, it every, every, every little picture of Mahatma Gandhi saying, let's go to town. <laughs> and he didn't waste any time. And it's interesting, he didn't go nearby, he went far away. There are many people who live respectable lives at home. But when they're in another place, away from prying eyes, they throw off all inhibitions. It's really embarrassing when you go to some foreign place and you see somebody living like the devil and you realize that they're actually from Dimapur. Oh, Lord, send me to Bangkok. He don't trust you. <laughs> he don't trust you. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. If we are more than merely cultural Christians, we'll be the same no matter where we go. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I must have hit a raw nerve there. Let's, let's try that one again. Let's go over here. If we are more than cultural Christians, we will be the same no matter where we go. If, if we pray here, we'll pray there. If we read our Bible here, we'll read our Bible there. If we go to church here, we'll go to church there. If we live for the Lord here, we'll live for the Lord there. And if you can't pass that test, then maybe you need to do a little soul searching. Are you really standing on his word or... Is the community propping you up? Amen. Hallelujah. And the, he said it, he squandered all of his property. And the Greek word for squandered, you know, I just wouldn't feel right about preaching a sermon this Sunday and not giving you the definition of at least one Greek word. I couldn't sleep tonight if I didn't do that. The Greek word translated squandered is, was used to describe winnowing grain. In other words, after they've harvested their wheat, their barley, that type of thing, they, they, would, they would throw it up into the air to separate the, the, the kernel from the chaff, the outer portion they don't want. And so the picture here is of a man throwing his money away, like, like, like tossing it out the window, like turning off the lights, you know, they can't pay the electric bill. Maybe we don't have electricity because we have people squandering our state funds. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. So if you work for the government, listen to this message. I've got more to tell you. In the easy-to-read version, it says this. There he wasted his money living like a fool. So it's not like that he made some unwise investments and then pfft, it went under. No, he, he threw it away. He was, he was living on a binge of sinful pleasures. In fact, the older brother later accused him of wasting his father's money on prostitutes. So he didn't just like maybe, you know, buy a lot of chewing gum or something like that. No, he was really living in a bad way. And it's funny how having a lot of money in your pocket can just sort of change your attitude. Now it's getting really quiet in this place. We've already received the offering, so you can relax. You know, isn't it true? Like, when you don't have anything in your pocket but a hole, you kind of walk differently. Kind of. <laughs> but when you've got like a big bundle, I mean 
a whole plethora of Mahatma Gandhis are right there in your pocket. You just kind of walk a little differently. <laughs> and so he was living large. I'm on the top of the world. I believe I can fly. I can believe I can touch the sky. Until the money ran out. As long as the cash was flowing, he traveled around with an entourage of fair-weather friends. You know, money is like breadcrumbs. You'll have a flock of birds all around you. <laughs> huh? Uh, but when the funds dried up, they vamoose. Isn't it funny how that some, when you have a lot of money and people know it, everybody's your best friend? Isn't that funny? And when you don't have even one pie to your name, even your mother doesn't answer your phone calls? <laughs> it's really funny how that works. And so he found himself isolated and ignored. The good times came to an end, and the local economy crashed to boot. So penniless and friendless, he had no choice but to find employment, God forbid. And not only that, but the only job he sec could secure was the noble and high office of feeding pigs. So. All of you probably raise pigs. This is, after all, Nagaland. I think they should replace the Mattoon. What did a Mattoon ever do for you? Put a pig there. That would really be better on the flag. <laughs> and my wife has raised pigs, you know, off and on. I think even, even now we have pigs, you know, and, you know, that's wonderful. Praise God. Glory. Hallelujah. And, of course, Nagas love their pigs. I've mentioned this before, but years ago... My wife came in the bedroom and she sat down and she looked so troubled. She just really bothered. And so I said, what's wrong? And she says, I, I don't want to distress you. I don't want to, you know, burden you with my problems. I said, no, 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 no. Tell me, you know, we'll pray about it. We'll talk about it. She said, well, several of the pigs are not eating well. <laughs> I thought she was going to tell me something about our children. <laughs> But you know, there's a happy ending to the story. She went down there and laid hands on those pigs and prayed for them and God healed them. She actually has that ministry. If you need help, call her. Thank God our pigs are born again. <laughs> but they did backslide last week. They backslid. This fellow brought a breeder. They backslid last week. <laughs> but... Feeding pigs for a Jew is unthinkable. It's horrible. And as an American, I'm not fond of it either. You know, uh, I see what they eat. You know, y'all don't give the pigs a menu. I think I'll have the fried rice. What would you like? I'll go with the chop suey. No, it's just like, bleh, whatever, you know, nobody wants. And, and in fact, it's worse than that. He was so hungry he was tempted to eat the pig food. Man, that's hunger on a whole new level. <laughs> I'd rather eat dirt before I eat what they eat. That's bad. And verse 16 says this, And no one gave him anything 
Where were all those parasites who were gobbling up my father's money? Gone. And nobody cares about you anymore. Verse 17, in verse 17, Jesus, who is the master storyteller, uses an interesting expression. But when he came to himself. See, that's what people need to do. They need to come to themselves. This is the turning point in the story. Like a man awakening from a long dream, he had an epiphany. What am I doing here? I heard one country preacher, uh, you know, Ektam Bastimanu, and he was preaching preaching about the, the, the prodigal son, and he said that he had no money, so he sold his jacket. Then, he, then, he, then when that was gone, he sold his shirt. And when the shirt was gone, he sold his undershirt. When he sold his undershirt, he came to himself. <laughs> he said, I'd be better off as a servant in my father's house than staying here. Hey, by the way, that's an interesting point. That means his father was an honorable person. That he did not mistreat the people working for him. Staff, you you say amen. (laughs) He did not mistreat the people working for him. My, My father's servants have more than enough to eat. He treated the people working for him well because he's an honorable man. Come on. How many servant girls working in Nagaland have been sexually abused? More than you realize. See, they're not, that's not honorable. That's devilish. Amen? So the son knew he had to return home, but he was ashamed. I mean, it's not like he can go home and say, guess what happened? I was robbed by bandits. They took everything. <laughs> that's a lot. You know, someone might pity you for saying that, but no one's going to pity you for, for hearing what really happened. And it's interesting, he didn't try to conceal his wrongdoing. And he didn't try to minimize it, because that's, again, human nature. Try to, like, you know, try to shrink it a little bit. Yeah, you know, I made a few mistakes. Don't we all? But, um, you know, really, I think it was a learning experience for me. And um, in the long run, I really believe I'm a better person now. So it's time to move on. (laughs) That's a lie. (laughs) You can't move on until you acknowledge what really happened. And he didn't make excuses. He didn't say, you know, maybe if I had been given the affection in this family, I would not have been so tempted to leave. You know, you all never appreciate me. If you all had just shown a little love, then this wouldn't have happened to me. That's a lie. Blaming other people is not the same thing as repenting. There's always mitigating circumstances, but you and I, we are responsible for the choices we make in life. Well, I made some mistakes. Sin is not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's a choice. You can't be forgiven of an accident, but you can be forgiven of sin. Can I get an amen? Amen. No, he spoke honestly. He said in verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He used the S word, sin. 
You know, it's just, it's just, hard, it's just hard to come out. These are, you know, what's wrong? Well, I have, I have missed it. What did you miss? Uh, well, I have, you know, uh, I, have, um, I, have, I, I have some issues. What is your issue? No, no, it's not issues. It's not a mistake. It's sin. It's just sin. And, and not only that, but he recognized that I didn't just do something that's wrong. I sinned against God. I sinned against God. And so in verse 19, he decided, you know, what he was going to say when he met his father. He, he rehearsed it in his mind. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So that shows there's some contriteness and humility in that statement. So he headed out on that long and lonely journey home. I'm sure he had a lot of time to think about it. What's going to happen when I get there? What will I meet? And if my father rejects me, then what will I do? I'm sure those thoughts were going through his mind. And, and it's very humbling because he left home like a conqueror. And he's coming back like a captive. And then Jesus in verse 20, adds this very touching phrase. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Was that just a coincidence? That the father just happened to be standing outside that particular place and what do you know, there he is? I mean, maybe, but I think there's a thought here that he was looking every day. Every day he was checking, where's my boy? Where's my boy? Hallelujah. I think that when this younger son re requested his share of the inheritance, I think the father knew what was going to happen. I think he knew his boy well enough to know what was going to happen. So why didn't he refuse? Why didn't the father say, no, 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 no. If I give you money, you're going to blow it. I, I know you. You're going you're to go straight to Las Vegas. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. Why didn't he just refuse? You see, if you're stubborn, and hard-headed, God will allow you to learn the hard way. I think he knew, the father knew that no matter what I say, he's not going to accept it. So I'm going to have to let him go. Sometimes love is letting go. May, may I say this to you? There's a temptation for us to always try to control our loved ones, our, our, our children, our other family members. But you can't. And they'll only hate you for it. You'll have to trust God. Sometimes, I'm not talking about little kids, but at some point you've got to let them go and just trust God that he'll look after them. Are you out there today? And then here is, in verse 20, the most startling part of the entire story. He saw, the father saw him from a distance and felt compassion. 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. When his eyes fastened upon this wayward one, he wasn't disgusted. He wasn't aggravated. His heart was broken. A lot of times we're angry at people because we're embarrassed. You're angry at your children because, you know, you're angry that your son got arrested, not because you're concerned about his welfare, but you wonder what the neighbors are thinking of you. That's selfish. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. He was concerned about his boy. And he didn't ignore the boy. He didn't turn around, quickly go inside the house and lock the door. He met him. And he didn't just stand there and wait for this wayward one to come. He didn't even walk. He ran. He ran. He ran to meet him. See, my dear friend, this is the heart of your father. When the wayward come home, he rushes to meet them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The father in this parable embraced his son. I mean, I'm sure this fellow smells pretty nasty, all he's been through. And not only that, he kissed him, which was in an oriental culture, you know, a sign of, uh, of, 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 of respect and appreciation. In other words, he not only welcomed the boy, he warmly greeted him with affection, as if nothing had happened. That's your father. So the son, you know, delivered his prepared speech. I'm sure he was rehearsing it in his mind with every step on the way. So father, I've sinned, I'm not worthy, blah, 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 blah. And what did the father do? He completely ignored that. He completely ignored that. See, sometimes we're praying, I'm unworthy, Lord. I'm, I'm just a worm. And God just ignores that. And um, a lot of times people think, well, if my prayer is very theological and religious sounding, then God will be impressed. Just come home. That's all that matters. Amen. Instead, in verse 23, the father gave instructions to his servants. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Not just a robe. The best robe. Come on. I think if it was me, I would have said, I think I might have an old dirty t-shirt somewhere in my closet. I guess you could have that. Maybe, we, maybe some of the other servants have some secondhand clothes. Take him to the town and maybe he can, we could find something secondhand that he can buy. He said, give him the best robe. Now, I can understand putting shoes on his feet. That makes sense to me. But if, if, if I was the father, I wouldn't say, and put a ring on his finger. Who cares about that? You see, this is not like just jewelry. This is a signet ring. 
in the first century AD, when families, houses of large estates made purchases, they did so typically on credit. Remember, there's another parable about the, the unjust steward, you know, who had taken, you know, so many measures of weed and oil. These things were taken on credit. So what they would do was they had a signet ring, which had a symbol on the surface of the family house. And they would take that and impress it maybe in, in, in wax or perhaps, you know, on a document. And that, that indicated that the, the transaction was, was completed. Basically, what the father did was he said, bring the best clothes, give him the best shoes, and also give him my credit card. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then he said to the servants, do this quickly. You know, I think we would have said, we'll watch him. We'll kind of, kind of check him out for a couple of months. You know, see how his church attendance is doing, you know. And, uh, you know, maybe after, you know, two or three months, we might, you know, buy him some new socks and underwear. No, no, right away, quickly. And then in verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. Well, the fattened calf is the one that the family has reserved for special occasions. So if this was taking place in Nagaland, it would be the Christmas pig or the wedding pig, right? The huba pig, right? This would be, this would be the one we're reserving because it's, it's going to be delicious, tender and delicious. Many pious fathers would have said, let us have a fast. But this loving father said, let us have a feast. And verse 25 tells us that later, when the older brother came to the house, he heard music and dancing. They were having a shindig. They were having a, 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 a you know, a hoedown. See, when sinners repent in heaven, they're not just standing, you know, real devoutly and reading from their hymnals, sing the Gloria Patria. Sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all praises. They're dancing. <laughs> it's like Saturday Night Fever or something. They're, they're, just, they're, just, they're, just, they're celebrating. Just as a joyous... If, again, if it happened... It, it, when a naga gets saved, the angels go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> so the main point of this story is that we have a heavenly father who receives those who have fallen and instantly restores them. See, that means you don't have to remain a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Many Christians, when they fall, you know, even though they, they ask God to forgive them, they feel like, well, from now on, I guess I just have to you know, sit up there in the balcony with these folks. I'm just teasing. I have to just sort of sit in the corner. And I shouldn't smile. Right? And, and I don't think I should even shake anybody's hand. When Pastor Lloyd said, Pastor Jeffy says, I'll shake hands, I'll just, I'll just look down at the floor. And I have to wear a scarlet letter 
You know, I'm, I'm a marked man. But when this son returned home, all that he had lost, all that he had forfeited, was immediately returned to him without hesitation. Hallelujah. Are you out there today? So the sinner who gets saved has all the same benefits as the saint who has been walking with the Lord for years. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. We are all his children. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He doesn't have any illegitimate children. He just has sons and daughters. Can I get an amen? amen. Hallelujah. But there's one more point. There's one more point, and I would be remiss not to mention this. There was an older son, and he was irritated at this celebration. And he refused to join the party. And again, this is so amazing to me. So the father left the shindig. He left the celebration and he went outside to talk to the older brother to explain the reason for their merriment. He could have said, ah, that boy is, a, is just, he's just a, he's a killjoy. He's a stick in the mud, you know, he's a party pooper. I'm not going to let that fellow spoil our fun. If he wants to stay in his bedroom and sulk, fine, go ahead. But he didn't do that. He loved the other son just as much as the, as the younger one. And he went out to meet him and talk with him and said, come inside. Come on. Don't stay out here. Don't sulk and feel bitter. Come on inside. We want you to be here. And that older son, he complained. He said, I never disobeyed you. I've been working for you faithfully my whole life. And you never even gave me a little goat, much less a fattened calf. Just, you never gave me a little goat so that I could have maybe a little party with my friends. It's so unfair. It doesn't seem right to me. But the father answered in verse 31. Now you take this to heart. He said, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You don't have to ask for anything. It's yours. If you want a goat... Take it. It's all yours. I'm reminded that Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're not a servant in God's kingdom. You're a son. Hallelujah. And you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So I would say in closing, don't feel jealous. We have too many people in the body of Christ, they're like the older brother. Don't feel jealous when God restores the fallen. And if it seems like he's blessing them too much. You know, that happens, doesn't it? Not to you, but I'm talking about the people down the street. That happens, doesn't it? Someone who hasn't been doing right at all, living a pretty rough life, and then God heals them. And instead of rejoicing, you're looking for theological reasons why that cannot be from God. 
somebody who's been wandering out in a worldliness and they come and get restored and God blesses them with new job and, and, and new clothes. And rather than being happy, it bugs you. You're the older brother. It's not the younger brother that's got the problem now. It's the older brother. Rejoice. Seems so unfair. He's always with you. And everything that he has is already yours.